The book of the prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham, who, with Sarah, had their son Isaac, who, with his wife Rebekah, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation. Literally, as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically, they truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this, the day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now, why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This first is a hinge piece, and it links the first half of the book to the second half, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, but not only for Edom. He widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now, the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew, the word Edom or Edom is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. But as in all the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. Specifically, remember the conclusion of the two books that came right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Joel had painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. He said that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humbled themselves and called upon him would be delivered. And in the conclusion of Amos, he said that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by my name. 
And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and then Amos to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all of the nations. And so the book concludes with a very hopeful future. God says he's going to restore his kingdom over the new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant. And then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and nations around Israel. And so, this little book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness that we're seeing in the prophets. The ancient pride and betrayal of the people of Edom becomes an example of the greater human condition, all of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world. But there's hope, Obadiah says. Edom's downfall points to the day when God will deal with evil in our world, but also bring his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. The book of the prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before, and so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry, and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. And so the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history. And Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age.
With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the Battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers, and then we read about the charge of the chariots, and then the chaos on the city walls as the city is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction, and so Assyria will fall before Babylon. The book concludes with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria. He's stricken with a fatal wound, and from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book, but it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of the innocent. And the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is grieved and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. And God's judgment on evil is good news, unless, of course, you happen to be Assyria. Which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter 1, which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time, he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. Good morning, Sherman Street. Um, This morning we are talking about Nahum and Obadiah, two prophecies against nations other than Israel. Obadiah is against the nation of Edom and Nahum against Assyria. They are both hard to read, um, as hopefully you know, because you've all done your reading. Um, Particularly Nahum is very graphic and violent. Um, But what you read in those pages is God's outrage at human cruelty and God's refusal to let it continue. Um, And I'll remind you too, you've read, we've heard this in the videos, uh, that God was not just outraged at nations other than Israel, but and at their cruelty towards Israel, but also God became angry at Israel's cruelty towards other nations as well. And so judgment fell on Israel as well. It's not that God is defending one people group, but that God is defending people. Um, the prophets are often hard to read, but it helps to notice why the judgment comes on these nations. For Edom, it was because they stood by and watched while Judah was attacked, gloating over their suffering. And then they entered into the fray themselves, taking advantage of Judah's weakness to plunder them, and then murdering the refugees as they tried to flee. Um, For Assyria, there is a different set of accusations. Um, One of them comes in chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, You have increased the number of your merchants until they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. 
And then again, uh, from the beginning of chapter three, this one is a little bit more intense. Uh, so he's speaking to uh, Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. It says, woe to you city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Now these are all images of war, right? Charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. And before and after that horrific description of Nineveh, God says to them, I am against you. Assyria is guilty of rampant consumerism that destroys the land and militarism. It sounds uh, just a little too familiar, right? Lord, have mercy on us. I know I've said this before, but humans are capable of incredible evil. And I am grateful that God is angry about it. As a person of privilege, living on a relatively safe street in a relatively safe city, for me, it can be really easy to believe that our capacity for evil is somehow less than it was, or that it's like mostly somewhere else. But it is not. If you need to be reconvinced of our ability to harm people in horrific ways, read about Abu Ghraib. I just did, and I have not quite recovered from that. Read about the Malai Massacre or slavery, or concentration camps, or residential schools. You know, those all seem kind of like they're in the past, but they are not that long ago. Or think about this. According to the International Justice Mission, globally, every day, more than 40 million people are trapped in slavery. And while that might still seem far away, we all know that a lot of the treats, toys, clothes, that we will trade this Christmas, they are gonna to come to us through the hands of slaves or from the world's most poor. If that all still seems far away, you can spend some time reading about the Milgram experiments or the Stanford prison experiments. I encourage you to do that. Um, they both show that most people given the right circumstances are capable of much more evil than we know. I mean, I watched this uh, this video from Berkeley. There was a study in Berkeley where they uh, they rigged a game of Monopoly and they told the people who were playing that it was rigged. So the two people playing against each other and to one person they said, essentially, you're gonna win this game. You get to roll twice for every one roll that your opponent gets. You get $500 when you pass go instead of 200 and you start with 5,000 more dollars than the other person starts with. The game is so clearly rigged in this one person's favor and both players know it and still, as they play the game, they watched and measured how people behaved. The person who was losing became smaller, shrunk down, talked less. The person who was winning took up more space, ate more snacks, talked louder, and even like, uh, you know, trash talked the person who was losing, even though they knew the game was rigged in their favor. Uh, you know, a rigged game of Monopoly doesn't seem like a very big deal until you think about all of the different decisions we make based on what we think we deserve and what we think others deserve a thousand times a day. How might we be shaped in certain ways? How are we behaving now in ways that we don't even know? And how we, might we behave differently 
given different circumstances. I am grateful that judgment will come and I expect that I will have things to answer for. What the Bible Project video about Nahum said is true. God's judgment against evil is good news. And they said, our God is grieved by the death of the innocent. God's goodness and justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. It's not exactly Christmas cheer that I'm preaching this morning, uh, but don't worry because I'm not going to talk for very long. I really only want to say one thing to you, and it's this. The God that we read about in the pages of Nahum and Obadiah is the same God who will come to us next week in the manger. And sometimes at Christmas, we get caught up in the cookies and the carols and the sweet little baby. And we forget to take into full account just who that baby is. I'd like, you, I'd like to challenge you to think about that this week as Christmas approaches. This is who that baby is from Nahum 1. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust at his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, the Lord God Almighty, slow to anger, but great in power, comes to us as a poor, helpless babe. He comes to us actually as a victim of an oppressive nation. After he's born, King Herod gives orders to murder every Israelite boy two years and younger. And coincidentally or not, Herod is a descendant of the Edomites, about whom Obadiah speaks. Jesus comes to us as a refugee, fleeing for his life. What would compel our God, whose way is in the whirlwind and the storm, to stoop so low? In the face of all the evil we are capable of, why come to us? Did he come so that when the strength of the empire came against the lowly, he would be among them? With all the evil that we could muster, the God who is grieved by the death of the innocents became one of those innocent victims himself on the cross. This week, 
as you make your preparations for gift exchanges and singing and meals together. Remember this. As we light the final candle in our Advent wreaths, that light burns for the one who tells us that our cycles of violence are doomed and damned, but that there is another way. It is a small, vulnerable, seemingly helpless way of love. The Lord be with you in these last days of Advent. Please pray with me. Lord, if only we knew how wide and how high and how deep and how long is your love. If we could understand what it means that that you let all of your glory dwell with us in the person of Christ. That the God we worship in Jesus is the same God who is outraged at human violence. Who just, who hates it, who hates it when people come against the weak. Lord, teach us what it means that you came to us in this way this week that you came to us as a child weak yourself. Teach us what it means to worship God like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'd like to invite you now to uh, come celebrate communion with us. Uh, we will be celebrating live on Zoom, so you should be able to click the link below. Um, and even if you don't like go to Sherman Street when Sherman Street is, uh, you know, in person, uh, you could still join us in the live Zoom for for communion. Uh, you just need to grab something like grape juice and something like bread. Um, for those of us at Sherman, you should hopefully you have been able to get some of the bread from the common from the grain that we have had from uh, from our farm, so uh, so that we are all in in a sense sharing the same loaf this morning. Uh, are compromised with COVID. <laughs> All right, I'll see you in a few minutes in Zoom.